Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, every day after Christmas, excuse me, every day after Thanksgiving, uh, my family would decorate the Christmas tree. And most of the time, we would do it after a long drive. I, 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 you know, if my wife was here, she would correct me. Um, it probably wasn't always the day after Thanksgiving, coming to thinking about it, because we were coming home from Fruta. Um, so we were probably coming home on, on Sunday. Uh, it was probably one of the few Sundays of the year I wasn't drugged to church when I was a kid. If I was drugged to church, it was to the Fruta Assembly of God, which was a lime green building in Fruta, Colorado. So it really made an impression on me. Um, the preaching was horrible, though. I even knew that when I was a kid. If it's horrible today, just deal with it. It'll be over soon. <laughs> I had to, right? You all have had to. <laughs> don't, don't answer that too quickly. The day after Thanksgiving, though, was traditionally when we would start thinking about Christmas. And, and we would come home and we would set up the Christmas tree. And we had this little nativity scene. You might have had one of these. It was made out of plastic, ours was. And, and it had glittery stuff on the, on the rooftop. And, and it was probably the first sort of like LED light that I ever saw in my life. Because on the back it had a switch. And it had this amber glowing little light bulb that was, that, that was powered by batteries. And I loved that thing. I looked so forward to getting it out. And for some reason, I've always liked lights. I've always liked when it gets dark and, and having the lights up and having the lights on. And this morning when I walked into the church, these were all off. But Brad came by before all you were here and all of them were on. And the lights in the whole place were off. And it was just gorgeous. And I thought let's just turn all the lights off today and have church that way. But then I thought, well, yeah, we could just do that. Maybe we should just turn the lights off because I'm here and you don't want to look at me. Ben, don't nod your head. <laughs> I love that little nativity scene. And over the years, we, ha- we got some other nativity scenes, but I always went back to that little one. It had a star that would shine over the manger. It had all the, the, the typical Christmas stuff in it. The wise men weren't there yet, you know. We were, we were kind of following, I guess, the, the, the church calendar without actually knowing about it when I was a kid. You know, the wise men didn't show up for like two years afterwards. But we had this nativity. Marnie loves to collect nativities. And so we have a bunch of nativities at our house and she loves especially the ones that you can get in Mexico that are handmade and hand-painted and they're these, these little pottery things. So we've got all these little nativities and most of them end up in boxes and that's where they stay. But we get the nativities out. In a nativity scene, you, you always have Joseph and Mary. And of course you have baby Jesus there. But then you have an ox and an ass, and Luke says nothing about them, but for some reason we've got them. And then there's always sheep. And there's sheep, why? Because there's always shepherds. Sometimes there's an angel. Sometimes there's a star, if your nativity can come up with a way for a star above it. But almost always there's shepherds and there's sheep. 
And it's interesting because when you think about the shepherd and the sheep, when you, when you, 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 you read the Christmas story, which we just had read to us, we just had that section of Luke 2 read to us where we see the shepherds hearing the good news. As one Christmas carol puts it, glad tidings. As the shepherds are there, and you, you know, we've kind of hallmarked this whole thing, haven't we? They're on a hillside. They're hanging out watching their sheep. Maybe they're sleeping. And suddenly the angel of the Lord appears and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, right? It makes me wonder, what time of year was this? You ever wonder that? Was it December? Anybody been to Israel in December? It's rainy. It's cold. You don't keep your sheep out overnight in December in Israel. In fact, most scholars are agreed that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. That this date was chosen because that was near a big pagan festival that was celebrated throughout Europe. And, and so they just decided, let's hijack this thing like we did Easter and let's make it Christmas. Let's help these pagans follow Jesus by hijacking their holiday. And so that's how we got December 25th to be Jesus' birthday. We can actually, from Luke's account, kind of get a guesstimate as to when Jesus was born. If you remember, last week we looked at Zechariah and his song. And Zechariah was a priest, and he was serving in the temple at a particular time, a particular feast. And we know that festival happened in June. And shortly after, he went home, and his wife conceived he was probably born in March. Jesus, his mother, visited Elizabeth, and she was expecting her son, Jesus, when Elizabeth was about six months along. And so we can do some math real quick, and we can figure out Jesus was probably born in September. It's interesting, because if you go to the book of Revelation, and as soon as I said that, people go, ooh, Revelation... If you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 12 or 13, there's actually some astronomical things that are told to us by the writer of Revelation. Now, since you're an American and a modern, you're not going to read it right. Because there's all this astronomical discussion about the signs in the heavens that were going on when Jesus was born. And some scholars have gone so far to say that the day when you punch it into a computer, into an astronomy program, and you get all these things to line up the way that Revelation talks about it, the day that Jesus Christ was born was probably September 11th, 3 BC. And we think September 11th, you know, but before September 11, 2001, none of us thought about September 11. The Shepherds are out in the field, probably around the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Actually, all of Israel was commanded to sleep in tabernacles, to take their meals in tabernacles. All of Israel was outside at this time of year. They were all outside in a makeshift tent. 
Why do I say makeshift? Because one of the commandments said that you had to be able to look through the roof and see the stars. This is before they had that mosquito mesh stuff. In fact, it had to be made of natural materials. It had to be made of, of, of vines or wood or evergreen leaves. Leaves? It had to be placed on this, and they would sleep outside. It's not surprising, then, that the shepherds are outside. What's surprising is there's not more outside. They must have been out in, in the sticks somewhere. You ever been out in the sticks? I drove to somebody's house, and man, they were out in the sticks. I thought Ray was out in the sticks. These folks were out in the sticks. One of those places that if you skid off the road, nobody's coming till the, till the spring, right? You been on that road? That's a scary road. That's out in the sticks. It's only about 20 miles from here. But they were out in the sticks. And these shepherds are out in the sticks. And out in the sticks, the angels come. And they announce this thing. And of course, you've seen the movie, right? You've seen the shows. You've seen the holiday specials. You've seen all the special effects. One thing we do know in this text tells us that they were sore afraid. Right? They were very afraid. You ever been afraid of the dark? I remember being afraid of the dark. Me and my kid brother, we shared a room and we had a bunk bed. I was on the top bunk. I was smaller then. I was on the top bunk and I remember that we had this window and it was kind of high up in our room and and, and it, it was facing north. And I remember on stormy nights, I remember the trees and the wind and the howl and the shadows. Did you have a room in a window like that? Everybody's afraid of the dark. And what are the shepherds afraid of? What made the shepherds afraid? Uh, it's interesting because if we look real quick at this passage, it starts in Luke chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Why were they afraid? The glory of the Lord shone around them. It makes me think of like that TV show X-Files, right? UFO, bright lights. And the person is like driving on this dark country road with the country music on. And then this bright light appears. And it's scary. Because you don't expect bright lights. Nowadays, we can have bright lights. We have electricity. We have bright lights. We have Las Vegas. Shepherds? Ancient Israel? 3 BC? Benjamin Franklin has not flown that kite with the key on it yet. They don't know about electricity. They don't know about these things. There's this bright light, and this would be scary because... What's going on? How is it daylight? How is it bright in the middle of the night? Further, why are they scared? 
Whose glory is this? The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. And one thing that I want you to see in this passage is we get the entire gospel in this passage, in this brief little song of the angels, in this brief little encounter, we get the entire gospel. You see, part one of the gospel is being afraid. Now, why would the presence of God make us afraid? Perhaps you're so churchy and you've been in church for so long that the presence of God does not create awe for you. Perhaps the presence of God no longer causes fear and trembling for you. Let me tell you, that's a scary place to be. The shepherds, why were they so afraid when the glory of the Lord appeared? I believe one of the things that they experienced was realizing just how creaturely they were. Just how small they were. Just how tiny they were. How insignificant they were. More than that, when it's God's glory, we know that this glory has dwelt in Israel before. It's actually dwelling in Israel at the time that this happens. It's dwelling in the temple. The glory of the Lord dwells in the temple. And we know that you're not supposed to go in there where the glory of the Lord is. And now it's here on a hillside with shepherds. And they're afraid. They're afraid because they are made known how sinful they are. That we don't measure up to God's glory. It's interesting because I was reading this book. This gal wrote and she interviewed a, a, a prominent scientist. And this scientist was talking about how he was not a person of faith. He actually talked to her after uh, hearing her speak at an event. And he came up to her and he says, I'm not a Christian yet, but I'm searching. And he said, well, as a younger man... The reason I thought I was an atheist, the reason I thought I didn't believe in God was because I was so rational. And I just thought, I thought my way out of it. But he says, as I get older, I'm realizing it wasn't me being rational. I believe that my unbelief is subjective. My unbelief, though, is being challenged because I'm realizing I'm not in control. I'm realizing I'm not in control of anything. You see, this man, he had had children. And his children were growing and they were young adults. And he said to this person that the decisions they are making are ruining their lives. And I want to, I want to tell them to, I want to stop them. And whenever I tell them, they're like, dad, quit meddling, quit trying to control me. And he says, it's dawning on me that the things that I love the most, the things that matter most to me are the most out of my control. Have you had this realization yet? The things that matter most to you are the most out of your control. Your kids, your health, your your finances. All these things, they are so out of your control. We have this sense of control and then a recession like 2008 happens. 
And many folks all of a sudden feel poor. Why? Because they were invested in the stock market. And on paper, that's all gone. And what happened? Did they change? Did they do something wrong? Did they have control of it? No, these market forces. And then you get the talking heads on on TV trying to explain, well, this is what happened. And all these years later, they're still trying to figure out, will it happen again? Has it has our economy gotten better? Are things looking up? Are we truly in control of these things? Let's elect this person and they'll fix it. How naive do they think we are to think that they have control of something as complex as the American economy? More than that, the world economy. That's like controlling the weather. You see, you and I are out of control. And in our, in our more honest moments with ourselves, and these happen with flashes of insight, that call from the sheriff's office, come pick up your kid. That call from the doctor, I need to see you. Are you free today? It's urgent. That call from the employer, you really don't know what you're doing, do you? That call from the client, you've been fired. I found somebody else. All these things, those are those flashes of insights where we understand I'm not truly in control. I've bought the lie where I think I'm in control. You know how old this lie is? It's the oldest lie. It was told to Adam and Eve in the garden. They had a consultant, and this consultant was telling them, you all need to become modern people. You all need to become people who decide, I'm going to eat from whatever tree I want to eat from. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I am in charge of me. I am in charge of my life. And this consultant told them, do whatever you want. You are in charge. You could be like a god. And unfortunately... They listened. They bought it. They listened to the consultant and they went and they ate from the tree they wanted to eat from. The one that God told them not to. And there's still that in us. There's still this part of the story in us that says, you know what? I don't have to listen to anybody. I can do whatever I want. I'm in charge. I can eat whatever tree I want to eat from. I can do whatever I want to do. When I first became pastor, this is like a true confessional moment. It's like pastor confessions. When I first became pastor here at this church and also at the Presbyterian Church, I was severely underqualified. I didn't know what I was doing. Did you know, before I got here, I had, you probably know this because you experienced those sermons, some of you. I had only preached like three or four times in my life. And it was to a captive audience. It was to a group of fellow students who had to be there. We had to evaluate each other. It was painful. And you all hired me because I lied somehow. (laughs) I had never, I had done one funeral. It was for a family member. They had lost a little child in childbirth. I didn't know what I was doing with funerals. I hadn't done but one wedding. 
And I'm pretty sure that wasn't even legal back then. I've, gotten, I've tried to get a hold of a couple. I, I've tried to let them know it's probably not valid. It's common law by now. You guys are okay. I had done so little. I had led worship at youth group. Where we sang, King Jesus is all. Goofy sing-along songs, like campfire songs, like kumbaya type of songs. For years, I was faking it till I made it. And even now, I wonder (laughs) if I've made it. It's interesting because I was in a job that I was not qualified for, and that made me feel anxious, defensive, frightened. And the reason I felt that way was because I was in a job that I wasn't qualified for. I was in a job and I was learning. And I'm still unqualified for the job. I'm still constantly learning and struggling and figuring it out. Have you ever had a job like that? Have you ever had a job where you're like, I'm not qualified. And if somebody comes along who knows this, I could be out of a job. It's a horrible feeling. It's that feeling of being out of control. And one of the things that Adam and Eve did was they decided, let's take this job on to be God of ourselves. And they didn't realize how unqualified they were for that job. Until God showed up. You see, he had walked in the garden with them many a time. They had interacted with God and they had never been afraid of him. They had never even known they were naked. This particular day, everything changed. We're unqualified. I'm not qualified to be God. We got to hide. That's what they did. And we've been hiding and faking it till we make it every day since. You see, the first part of the gospel we see here is to be afraid. Is to fear God. Is to understand that he is holy and you are not. That he is loving and you are not. That he is good and you are not. That he is kind and you are not. He is merciful, and you are not. Paul put it this way years later after Jesus. He said, we fall drastically short of the glory of God. We fall short of God's glory, and all of us fall short of God's glory. The shepherds understood that. And it takes light to help us see these things. But the cool thing is, when you experience these moments of light, and some of you are going through these things right now, and you are cursing the light, you are angry at the light because you are experiencing a wake-up call, and if you did grab hold of it for what it is, instead of fighting it, if you would grab hold of it and see it as God's grace to you, that he is working He wants to change you instead of fighting it. Instead of trying to be more in control. Instead of of kicking against the goats. If you would relax and be honest 
and surrendered control to Christ. Well, they go on, the angels. They say, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Whose favor does God's favor rest on? <laughs> who, who has God's favor resting on them? Who are these people? Don't you hate it that... Don't you hate it that it sounds like it's not everybody? Don't you hate it? On earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Why did they throw that part in? You see, Hallmark doesn't like that part. Our culture doesn't like that part. Oprah doesn't like that part. They don't like that part. They just think peace on earth. Goodwill to everybody. And oh, if the story was true. If it truly was that way. If it truly was that way, then Jesus, this whole story would be meaningless. <laughs> this whole story would be pointless. If God's favor rested on everybody, he wouldn't have to come. He wouldn't have to show up. His glory would not have to shine. We used to have that. We had it for two chapters in the Bible. Genesis 1. And Genesis 2. God's favor rested on everybody. For two chapters. And then the consultant comes. And the consultant says, become modern people. Do whatever you want. Disregard the laws. Disregard the authority. Disregard. Disrespect. Whatever you want. Be your own God. And the rest of this book... (laughs) The rest of this book is about God trying to fix rebels without killing them. The rest of the book is about God trying to fix rebels without killing them. Because there was a simple solution. You might have heard Bill Cosby when he's talking about his children. And he's disciplining them. And he says... I brought you in the world and I'll take you out of this world and I'll make another one look just like you and probably smarter. You see, Bill, with all his faults, has stumbled on a spiritual truth. God could have taken you out this world because he brought you in the world and he could take you out and he'd make one that's just like you probably better. And the whole story is God trying to deal with rebels without destroying them. You see, that's what happens when you step into God's light. When you step into his glory. When you step in and you see just how awesome and powerful and mighty and holy and glorious he is. You fall on your face. And lie there like dead. That's what Isaiah, the prophet, experienced. That's what Elijah experienced. That's what Elisha experienced. That's what all these prophets experienced. When they experienced God's presence, they fell down on their face as though dead. 
And, and, and Isaiah went a step further and he says, Woe is me. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. You see, when God's glory shines on you, it's actually scary, but it's gracious. It's gracious because it brings you to that moment of crisis where you are going to have to make a choice. Am I going to be a person who follows Christ who follows God, who admits my shortcomings, my failures, my sin? Am I a person that is willing to see me for the wretch that I am? And if we are, then we're ready for the next part of the gospel. We're ready for, on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, those who... God, his favor rests on, are those who have been humbled, who have been repentant. Like the shepherds. More than that, do you see what their response is to the news that they've heard? Let us go. (laughs) Let us go and see this, which God has made known to us. You ever use your imagination when you're reading the Bible? What if somebody was to say, ah, what about the sheep? Did you ever think about that problem? The reason we're out here is because of the sheep. The Bible said it. I read it. Must be why they're there. Is there a, is there a corral? Is there a fence? If there's a fence or a corral, why are they needed? Are they on the dole? Like, are they taking advantage of some Israeli government program where they aren't really working, but they're saying they're working? I mean, what? how is this working? Why are they free to leave their post, their position? What's going on? Did somebody stay back? Was there some unfortunate soul that had to disobey God and the angel's command to go and see this thing? Because, well, there's sheep, God. I got to stick around for the sheep. Have you ever said no to God because there's more important things to do? Because there's somebody that's got to watch the sheep? See, I kind of think that's why we're not very... That's why we're not ready for revival in this country. We're too busy. You see, the, the, new, the new commodity is people's time. That's why a Cane Ridge, apart from the grace of God, will never happen again. Because we want it done in an hour. Because we got things to do and people to see. This has been on my calendar for over a month now. And I can't break this commitment. What if the shepherds had said that? They had a job. They were being probably paid a fair wage. If not, they were, they were the owners of the sheep. And they had a lot at stake if they left. Apparently, they thought they had more at stake if they didn't leave. If they didn't obey. If they didn't follow. 
You see, sometimes we forget this part of the message of grace. That there's an obedience that is demanded of us. If God has been so gracious to us to demonstrate to us how sinful, how pathetic we are, entangled in our own sinfulness, entangled in our own lack or, or th- our deception of thinking we are in charge and in control of things. If he has given us the grace to break into that and show us that deceitfulness. And then he says, I'm in charge. You don't have to be that. I'll take control. I mean, how foolhardy are we if we don't follow that? And you see, that's why grace is so scary to us. Because you can't control grace. You can't control it. You can't negotiate with it. You can't say, hey, look, I'll take care of this if you do that piece for me. I'll take care of this, but you do that. You're still navigating it through control. You're still trying to control the uncontrollable. You're still trying to control God. (laughs) You're still believing the old lie. See, grace calls us to obedience. Some of you need to take that step today. You've experienced grace. You've experienced the aha moment But for whatever reason, you're still wanting to call the shots. You're still wanting to say, I am eating from this tree. And come hell or high water, God, you're not stopping me. If grace is true. If grace is really true. If God has really given this favor then why wouldn't we follow? Why wouldn't we obey? This world is fleeting. Our lives are but a mist, says the scriptures. You are out of control of of nearly, not nearly. You are out of control of everything. And if you don't believe me, then you haven't been visiting folks at Hillcrest. You haven't walked the ward of a cancer ward at a hospital. You haven't gone to children's hospital and visited kids with incurable, horrible cancers and diseases. You haven't stood at a graveside. You haven't watched a child rebel. You haven't gotten that call. But see, I know you all too well to know you've experienced these things. Why is it we don't obey? Perhaps we don't understand Christmas. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that those of us who need to experience your grace in new ways... That it would start with a healthy dose of awe, respect, and fear of you. Just like it did for these shepherds. I pray that each of us would experience a new personal revival in our hearts this Christmas season. That we would turn towards you. 
just knowing exactly who we are. We are so creaturely and so out of control, and yet we buy a lie. And I pray that in your grace you would show us this lie for what it is. And I pray, too, that we would turn to you, that we would seek to be those who your favor rests on. And that when this happens to us, we would obey. Holy Spirit, make it so. Now that may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you know how awesome and fearful our God is. May you know how gracious and loving and kind he is. May you turn and follow him. Amen.